really good to see all of you this morning. Uh, and uh, let's go to God in prayer now as we ask Him to really help us to understand His Word to us. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we come to your Word, that you will give us a picture of who you truly are and to know how we must respond to you in everything that we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, now, there was once a, a very famous evangelist uh, in Australia that I had the privilege of hearing a few times called John Chapman. Now, he since died, but when he preached, uh, I really felt that he really made the passage and God come alive. And he would preach anywhere, in pubs and clubs, in offices and workplaces, in schools and homes and sporting events. I, I remember him actually preaching on a boat once before. So he would go anywhere and preach anytime to seek and save the lost. But I remember him telling us a story one day about how when he preached and after the sermon, a young man came up to him and said that he was offended by his sermon. And he said to John, he said, you know, you're trying to scare me into believing in Jesus. Uh, you're trying to scare me that God will judge me. He says, well, that, that, that won't work with me, this young man said. You know, I don't believe in a God like that. That's not the sort of God I believe in. The sort of God I believe in is a God of love. Now, what is God like? What is God really like? Now, I think that uh, what this young man expressed to John Chapman wouldn't be very far away from what many Singaporeans and many people around the world believe in. That God is a mild and meek God. That God is some sort of uh, this benevolent, caring, somewhat absent-minded uh, Akong figure, right? Always loving, always patient, always full of grace. And I think that as we come to the book of Amos, even though uh, there are many centuries which bridge our time and Amos's time, that was probably quite similar to the way that they viewed God as well. Now, let's look right at the very beginning of uh, Amos to get a bit of background, because background is essential to understanding the book of Amos. It says in verse 1, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. Now we know very little about this writer called Amos, but we know that he was not a prophet by profession. Right? This is not something he did professionally, but rather he was a shepherd. He looked after sheep, or maybe he was a herdsman, or maybe even the owner of some flocks. But it says there that God spoke to him through a series of visions. He said, the vision I saw, or he saw, concerning Israel. Now, Israel at this time in history was not the totality of God's people. It was just one part of God's people. And that's why we need to understand a bit of what's happening here in the times of Amos. Now, if you look at, uh, uh, I'm going to give you, uh, I guess, a very brief and quick rundown of the history of Israel to see where we're at. Now, we know that right at the very beginning, uh, after Joseph came into the land and they brought all the, his father and everybody else, uh, after many years... Egypt, the king of Egypt, forgot about the, the things that uh, uh, he, his forefathers had done, and he began to abuse and uh, put into slavery God's people. God saved his people, and after they wandered around for 40 years, and brought them into the promised land of Canaan. Now, next slide. Now, around 1400 BC, uh, the people of God went into the land, and I don't know whether it's not very sharp, this picture. Okay, well... That's the way it is. Uh, and he gave them 
uh, allotments in the promised land. So you can see Simeon was here, Judah was here, Reuben was here, Gad, Ephraim, Benjamin. So he gave them these allotments in the land. And uh, we went through the period of Judges. Remember, we did Judges recently. And we saw that uh, this during this period, Israel, uh, through its different levels of faithfulness, began to populate the land and began to fill it out to different degrees of success. Now, what happened after that was that there was a period of kings. Okay, there was King Saul, and there was King David, and King Solomon. Okay, next slide. Now, the period of King Solomon was probably the richest and uh, the, the most successful period of the kings, the monarchy. And as you can see, the uh, extent of the land controlled by Israel was very large at this time. It was probably the largest at any point in time which was controlled by God's people. Unfortunately, after King Solomon died, there was a split with uh, the kingdom because obviously King Solomon had many, many wives and this contributed to a lot of problems in the terms of succession and kingship. So the land was divided, God's land was divided into Israel, which is the northern kingdom made out of ten tribes, and Judah, the southern kingdom, which was made up of the southern provinces. And this northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah they became separate countries in every sense. They had their own capitals. So the capital of Israel is religious capital and its uh, administrative capital in the beginning was Bethel. And Jerusalem was the capital, the religious capital and administrative capital of Judah. And both Judah and uh, um, uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, will be at war at various stages after this split. And I think this period was a period in which both the Israel and the Judah, the, the northern and the southern kingdoms, as they were fighting each other, they, there was a period of weakness where all their neighbors took advantage of this split, the civil war, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Syrians, to win back some of the land which they had lost under Solomon. Now, when we come to the times of Amos, um, next slide, okay, both the southern kingdom and the, Jew, and, and the northern kingdom so Israel and Judah, experienced a prolonged period of peace, stability, and prosperity. Because for, for once in a very long time, they had two kings which had very long reigns, and they were quite successful in terms of looking after their kingdoms. So there's King Uzziah, that we read about here in Amos, King Uzziah in Judah, and King Jeroboam of Israel. And both of these kings ruled in a period of stability and prosperity, and really, uh, for many of the younger people who were there, they would have, within their living memory, uh, very good memories of what was happening. There was stability, there was peace. It was becoming very rich, Israel, because of this peace. So if you were to go to the people of Amos' time and ask them, what do you think of God? They would probably say the same thing that many people believe in today, that God is a God of love and He loves us and He's blessing us and He's favoring us. God is a very compliant God who answers our wishes. But look at what Amos says in response to that in verse 2. Amos says, The Lord roars from Jerusalem and thunders, sorry, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Now, what a shock this would be to uh, the hearers of uh, Amos who are living in Israel, the northern kingdom. Because God was not this compliant, loving God, which they imagine, but a God who roars and thunders. 
So what is God like? Well, God is a terrifying God. You see, in the ancient world, what would be the things which would be the most terrifying and the most awesome things that you come across? It would be a lion. It would be the experience of of nature, of thunder. Uh, even for ourselves today, you know when you get woken up sometimes by a huge thunderstorm, when there's lightning and thunder, that's it, it strikes fear into our hearts. Well, that's what God is like. God is not some mild and meek pussycat, but He is a roaring lion. And this is so different from the expectation of the people of Amos. In a sense, it's very different from our expectations. You know, sometimes when you hear some preachers preach about how basically God is just waiting for you. He's just waiting for you to ask so that He can bless you. What sort of picture of God does that send to people? Uh, to me, it's almost like God is this, um, you know, this telephone help desk operator and He's just waiting for you to dial up the, the you know, call God and uh, so that He can answer your call and, 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 and bless you. You know, God is like this servant or waiter or butler who's just waiting for your every need to be met by you. But this is not the picture of God in Amos. See, the picture of God in Amos is a God who roars and a God who thunders. The most, uh, what is the most repeated word in the Bible? Now, see, think for a moment. If, I mean, many of you have read the Bible quite a bit. What is the most repeated word that we come across in the Bible? It is the word fear. Okay, I know some of you are using your iPads or your, your, your phones. If you search for fear, you just see pages and pages of Bible references from the Bible. And why is that? Because God, when you meet God, there is fear. There is real fear. And that's why when people say, I want to meet God, they don't really know what they're talking about because to meet God is to meet with a terrifyingly powerful God. And when people say, oh, I met God the other day, you know, God spoke to me. But when God speaks to you, you are filled with fear. And that's why in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Because until you rightly understand who God is, you cannot begin to get knowledge. So God is not a pussycat. God is a roaring, powerful God who must be feared. Now, the second point that we see here in verse uh, 2 is that the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Now, when we think of it in Singapore, it really doesn't make much sense to us where God roars from. I mean, we always know, we always know that God roars from Israel or from Jerusalem or from Judah. But I think that it's very important to understand who exactly Amos was speaking to? See, Amos was preaching to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you look at this map, right, if you look at this map, uh, Israel, after the split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, set up their own religious uh, centers. Because obviously you don't want all your population going down to Jerusalem every year to celebrate Passover feast and the Feast of Booths. So they set up religious uh, centers in Bethel, Samaria, and Dan. But here it says that Amos says that the Lord, Yahweh, whenever you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, Yahweh, which is a covenant name of God, roars 
not from Dan or Samaria or Bethel, but he rose from Zion and Jerusalem. Now Zion was the, the, the hills in which Jerusalem was built on, right? So it's the same place. So what it's really saying to the Israelites to whom Amos is preaching to, that you cannot worship God in your own time, in your own way, and your own place. See, we, we, we can fall into the same mistake of the Israelites. We want to dictate to God how we worship Him, what we do for Him, and what we believe of Him. And that was what the, the northern kingdom, the Israelites, were trying to do. When they set up their religious centers in Dan, Samaria, and Bethel, they would set up shrines, and they would set up things which God never said to set up. And in the same way, there are people who live in our time who say, you know, I don't really don't care what God's word says. I will do what I want in order to worship God. I don't really care who God is. I will believe what I want. I will make up my own God and I'll worship Him the way I want to worship Him. But this passage, even up to verse 2, just the second verse, tells us that God cannot be domesticated. See, you cannot tame God or train God like a pet. But rather, God tells you what to do and not the other way around. Now I wonder, as we listen even to just verse 2 of Amos, whether we make that mistake whether we find ourselves telling God what we want Him to do, rather than listening to God telling us what we, He wants us to do. Because that is who God is. He is a powerful God. And we need to listen to Him and worship Him as He wants us to worship Him, rather than make up the ways that we would like to worship Him. Now, it goes on to say in the second half of verse 2, that when the Lord Yahweh roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Now, what it says here is that when God speaks, things happen. Right? It's not like a, like some of the dogs in my HDB flat, you know, these small chihuahuas where they bark, bark, bark very loudly. But then, you know, when you take one step towards them, they sort of run away. Okay, right, you know? All talk, but no action. But rather, when God roars, there are destructive and terrifying consequences. When He speaks, the pastures of the shepherds will dry up, and the top of Carmel will wither. So again, if you bring up the old map again, see, Carmel was uh, this place. Can you see Mount Carmel? For those of you who can see well enough. Oh, well, thanks. Well, that's very good. Okay. Mount Carmel, which was a range of mountaintops uh, facing the sea, and they were renowned for their luxurious, fertile mountain gardens. But it says that when God roars and thunders, even this fertile mountaintop will wither as a result of God's judgment. Therefore, the message is clear. Now that God is roaring and thundering, uh, it is not an empty threat. It is not something which people can ignore but rather real judgment and real danger is at hand. And what happens next from verse 3 all the way to the end of chapter 2 is a series of pronouncements of judgments. And this is what will happen in a very real way to all the nations and to Judah and Israel herself. Every one of these pronouncements begins the same way. It says in verse 3, 
This is what the Lord says. Uh, now, I think that the NIV translation is a very uh, meek and mild and weak translation. I, I much prefer the older translations like the KJV or the NASB, where the, the more literal translations which literally says, Thus says the Lord. Because when, when I read this, I said, this is what the Lord says. It's, it's almost as if I'm just communicating to you some information, right? This is what Y said, or this is what I said, or this is what somebody said. Oh, it's just information, you know? This is what someone said. Holland won last night, you know? And, and, uh, and you know, uh, yeah, uh, Belgium lost. Okay, I'm just giving you information. But actually what it literally says in verse 3, and, and, and every time there's a pronouncement is, thus says the Lord. It is not a communication of information, but rather it is a pronouncement of judgment where God is saying, this will happen. This is going to happen because I have roared and I have thundered. This is not just for your information. This is the future and this is what's going to happen. And then he always follows it up with this thing, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Now, we're not really sure what this three sins or four sequence formula means. Uh, they, they may mean various things. It may mean that, you know, you can be forgiven three times, but this fourth time you've crossed the line. It may mean three plus four equals seven, right? Some people think. But at the end of the day, what it's really saying is God's patience has reached its limit. Uh, you've been given warning after warning after warning. You've not repented. I've called you over and over again. And this is you crossed the line. And I will judge you because you've crossed the line. And as we read here, as we've read uh, here with Pokim, what happens is Amos, God speaks to Amos, and next slide, and he goes all around all the nations, almost like a, what do you call it, a um, centrifugal uh, way of doing, you know when you look at the your drain, your toilet drain, you know how it goes from the outside in? So he, God looks at the outside and he goes, works his way into the middle. And he pronounces his wrath and his judgment on all the nations around Israel and he ends up with Israel last. So let's pay attention a bit now to uh, how God uh, pronounces his judgment on the nations and what's going to happen. So in verse 3 he says, This is what the Lord says, or thus says the Lord. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Okay, so God says that Damascus, which is up here, next slide. Okay, up here, Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. He will judge her because she has threshed Gilead. Gilead is this uh, region on the uh, east of Israel. Very bad place to stay, obviously, bad neighborhood because everybody beats up on Gilead, as we will see. But it says there that Damascus didn't just go in and fight against Gilead, but it says that she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Now, whether this is a, a picture, metaphorical language, or whether she literally did this, it's a picture of a war crime of extreme brutality. To thresh something, next slide, is to um, harvest grain using like a cart, and, and sort of cutting down the stalks of the grain. So in the olden days, obviously in the olden days, they didn't have this sort of machine, but they would have carts which were drawn by bulls and cows, and they'd have, 
I guess strings apparently of of sharp iron and bones which would, would which would cut and drag across all these stalks of grain. So whether Damascus literally put live people there and drag these carts across them, or whether she he was so she was so brutal to Gilead that it was equivalent to doing that, we don't know. But God says that she is guilty of terrible brutality, a barbaric war crime, horrible torture. And as a result, he says in 4 and 5, that he will bring fire on the house of Hazel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. And I'll break down the gates of Damascus. I'll destroy the king who is in the valley of Even and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Evan. And the people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Okay, so next slide. So God will judge Syria and it says there he will bring the people and take her out into exile. Now, the next few uh, ones we will try to go through quickly so we can sort of get a feel of what's happening rather than look at the details because the feel is very important. Next slide. So here, uh, he talks about Gaza. And he says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent, in verse 6, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Okay, so I just got this random picture. All right. And probably uh, what was happening was the people, the, the Philistines here were, were, were capturing communities on the outskirts of Judah and they were selling them to Edom for slavery. So they were guilty of being involved in the slave trade, taking captive whole communities and families and children and selling them as slaves to Edom. And what does God say He's going to do? He will destroy the major cities of Philist- the Philistines. Right? That's what it says there in verse 7 and 8. The next city is Tyre. Okay, Tyre was up north. And Tyre actually did the same thing. It says that she also con- transported uh, slaves, whole community of slaves to Edom. Edom seems to be this big uh, uh, like uh, supermarket for slavery, right? Okay, so everybody's selling slaves to Edom and, and Tyre got into the act. But look at what it says to Tyre because Tyre actually is guilty not just of the slave trade, but it says there of a double, a double sin. So in verse 9 it says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. And it says they're disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. See, what it was actually saying was, Tyre should never have done this, because actually since the time of King David, uh, Tyre had a treaty with God's people. So King David, King Solomon, even up to King Ahab, Tyre had very good relationships and a treaty with Israel and with Judah. So as a result, what she was actually doing was not just being guilty of slave trading, she was guilty of betrayal. That she was actually betraying a friend, almost like a brother who had been a friend since King David, King Solomon, for generations and generations of kings, they were allies, but now... Tyre had broken the treaty to sell slaves to Edom. Uh, to Edom, that's right, yeah. And as a result, next slide, God says that he will destroy Tyre. Okay, next one, Edom. Okay, Edom is here, and Edom was actually uh, a descendant from the same line of people as uh, God's people. So Esau and Jacob were brothers. Esau became Edom. And Edom here says, fought and pursued relentlessly Judah 
and kept fighting and fighting against Judah. And God says, and it says here in verse uh, 11 that she slaughtered the women of the land. Again, another war crime, right? So here God is actually saying that Edom is guilty of unrelenting warfare and a war crime against the civilians as well. The next slide, as a result, God will destroy Edom, its major cities. Okay, next slide. Okay, Ammonites are here. And the Ammonites, it says, fought and destroyed against Gilead. They tried to expand their land. But more than that, they ripped open uh, pregnant women. Okay, again, another war crime, another horrible torture, and God will judge them. And last of the nations was this nation of Moab. Now, Moab is a very interesting case for us because in all the other cases, Philistines, Ammonites, uh, Damascus, Tyre, they, they all seem to be committing sins against God's people. They were sinning against God's people. So, maybe people were thinking, well, God is really judging these nations because they are picking on His people. But the sin of the Moabites, if you notice, was that they burned as if to lime the king of Edom. So the sin was not against God's people in Judah or Israel, but against Edom. And what it actually shows is, God is not punishing the nations because they are sinning against His people, but they are sinning against Him. Right? Their sin is not just against His people, but He's punishing them for their sins. And as a result, it says there, next slide, He will destroy the nation of uh, Moab and its cap- uh, capital in Kiriof. Now I think that as we look at this passage just quickly, I think it shows us that when people sin, God will call them to account. It doesn't really matter whether people know God, know Yahweh, or whether they recognize Him, or whether they even recognize His law or what His standards are. Because God will call them to account and He will judge them. And what seems to be happening here in verse 3 to chapter 2 is that people will be without excuse. Because through general revelation, they have no specific revelation of God, they don't know what the law is, in their conscience they would have known that slave trading, the breaking of treaties, cruelty, destruction, all these things were wrong. And I think that, to a certain degree, each and every one of us, whether we are Christian or whether we are not, whether we know God or whether we don't, whether we know God's Word or whether we know we don't, all know deep inside ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And God will judge us based on what we know in our hearts and our conscience, so that we are without excuse on the last day. Now, I know that uh, if you actually bother to try to think about it a bit more or whether you have any interest in it. Uh, Some people today are arguing that there is no such thing as morality in this world. There's no such thing as ethics. That ethics and morality are a cultural and a social uh, uh, paradigm or social or cultural uh, imprint on us. So some people are arguing, you know, basically there's no such thing as conscience. Conscience has evolved through evolution. Conscience comes about because of what society tells us is right or wrong. Unfortunately, I don't think that's what is true in reality, and I don't think that's what the Bible says. So I remember reading an ethics book uh, recently, uh, where there was a Christian man who was involved in a discussion with a non-Christian, and this non-Christian said, oh, you know, 
right or wrong, it's all culture. This is what just society is imposing on us, right? So this Christian man, who is also a ethical writer, challenged this man. He said, okay, I want you to catch a plane to go to the deepest, darkest Africa, or Papua New Guinea. And I want you to go to this village, which has never been exposed to anything, and I want you to go to the first person you see, and I want you to steal something from that person. Right? I don't know, whatever they're wearing, right? Steal something from them. What would happen to you? Well, two things, right? You'd actually probably get beaten up or killed, or something would happen to you because there is no culture in any society in the world which says stealing is right. Uh, that's what anthropologists say. There is no society in this world which says stealing is right. And there's no society in this world which sort of condones murder and various things. Because universally, all human beings have a conscience and know what is right or wrong. And here God will judge the nations because they know that these things are wrong and they're doing these wrong things and they will answer to them. In Romans chapter 2, it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. See, on that last day, every single human being will stand before God and there will be no excuse. There will be no excuse because deep inside each person there is an awareness of sin and what is right and what is wrong. See, even for ourselves, there are times where we do things in our heart where we know is wrong. And we try to rationalize it away. We think, well, nobody will get hurt if I do this, or everybody's doing it anyway, and nobody will know. But God knows everything. God sees everything. And on that last day, when He roars and thunders, He will judge, and no one will escape. So everybody needs to pay attention to God, because ignorance is not an excuse. He will judge based on the things that we have done. Now, verse 4 to 5 is the first surprise. Because for the people of Amos' time, they would have been more than happy to read about the judgment of Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and all the other bites, right? But they would have been very surprised by verse 4 and 5 that God would actually judge uh, their fellow people in Judah. This is what the Lord says in verse 4. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods and the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah and they will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. So again, this is Judah. And God actually says, because they have not kept the law, they followed other gods, their punishment is exactly the same. He will send fire on Judah, which will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Now, this to us, even to us, is a very surprising thing. Because it seems as if the sins of Judah 
are nowhere as severe in the world's eyes as the sins of the Moabites or the Damascus or of Gaza. Right? If you if you look at exactly what Judah has done, they have not kept his decrees and the law. They've they followed other gods. But I think that in the world that we live in, uh, that's not a very big deal, isn't it? I mean, lying, stealing, cheating, uh, following other gods, that's, that's all okay. But notice here that Judah has actually been judged just as harshly, just as severely as all the other nations. Now, I think that this is very important because when we turn to the Bible... The Bible is not essentially teaching us about ourselves, how to be richer or happier or smarter or more successful, but it's teaching us about God. And what this is actually telling us is the standard of God's holiness, the standard of God's character to sin. So what's actually happening here is when we view sin, part of the problem is we view sin in terms of a sliding scale of sins. Many people say, oh, I'm a good person. And you say, why are you a good person? They say, well, you know, I'm not a murderer and neither am I a rapist or neither am I uh, something else. So we think, well, because I'm not a murderer and I'm not a rapist, then I'm actually a good person before God. But actually what it's really saying here in this passage is God's standard of holiness is so high that even breaking the law, rejecting God in your life, is as bad a sin that demands your judgment. Now, I think that uh, when we sit here, does anybody think they're as sinful, as evil as Hitler? No, right? Does anybody here compare themselves to Stalin? No. Do we see ourselves in the same uh, category as Pol Pot? No, isn't it? But the thing is, based on man's morality, man's judgment, yes, we are not like Hitler, Pol Pot, or Stalin. But in God's eyes, in God's eyes, when we break the law, when we reject Him, we are of the same category. We will face the same level of judgment. Now this thing really cuts into our hearts to teach us just how much God hates sin and how bad judgment will be. I remember uh, someone shared before of, you know Billy Graham? You all know Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham was this very famous preacher before my time. And uh, apparently there was another evangelist which was a contemporary of Billy Graham who apparently preached... um, very effectively as well. But when people were evangelized by this man, apparently uh, many of them remained Christians for many years longer than after Billy Graham. Because apparently when Billy Graham preached, uh, after one year they did some surveys to see how many people are still Christian. And, 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 and unfortunately many had left. But this other guy who when he preached, many years later, many people still remain Christians. And one of the reasons that was found was because he kept preaching about God's judgment. And he really preached God's judgment really incisively and really faithfully so that people saw the great need for salvation. See, the problem that we live with today is that we live in an age of uh, cheap grace. 
cheap grace. Because we think that we are generally good people and we just need a little bit of forgiveness. Just a little bit for the little things I've done wrong. But that's because we have a profound misunderstanding of just how sinful we are in God's eyes. See, if we look at this passage and we see how Judah is judged for breaking the law and rejecting God, then in the same way, when we look at ourselves, we have to see that we are truly and utterly sinful by God's standard. Jesus said the same thing when he spoke to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had a very misunderstood, uh, I mean, they misunderstood God in terms of how perfect they were, isn't it? So here in verse 36, I'm just going to read to you a long passage. I won't spend a long time talking about it, but I think the point is clear. Now, one of the Pharisees, right, these Pharisees, remember, they thought they were very perfect people. They were very sinless. Invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, he began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, she would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of him will love him more? Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she, has, for she loved much. For he who has been forgiven little, loves little. See, the, the, the problem of the Pharisee and our problem is that we love Jesus little because we believe that we need to be forgiven little. But when we recognize just how far short we have fallen from God's holiness, then we recognize just how much forgiveness we need from God. All the more when we see how far short we have fallen, then we will run to the cross of Jesus Christ even more. See, ultimately, we need to see that there is a great gulf in our life in terms of meeting God's standard. If failure to keep His law is the same as ripping open a pregnant woman's belly, then we see how, in God's eyes, how far short we have fallen before Him. And all the more, we need the forgiveness of God. Now let us not delude ourselves that God will not judge in this way. Because I think the last thing that we see here is that God is a God of history. And ultimately, He did bring the destruction to Judah, the Amorites, the Moabites that He promised. Okay, next slide. Now, Amos preached between 750 and 760 BC. Okay, remember this was a very good time. Everybody was very happy, peace and stability. 
Assyria would rise as a, the, the preeminent force or military power within a, a few decades, and by 722 BC, right, just 30 years from when uh, Amos was preaching, Israel would fall, and all the threats of judgment that were prophesied by Amos would come true. So God is a God who will keep His word, and He will bring judgment. And I think that as we come to the very end of uh, this uh, passage, we must realize that God means business. When He roars and thunders, the pastures wither. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to share this uh, illustration. I was in the MRT the other day, a while ago, and it was very empty. And this woman, the mother, and the child came in. And uh, this child proceeded to run up and down the aisle, screaming away, right? And then decided to lie down flat across four seats on the MRT. And, and, and I, you know, I, was, I was watching this child and I was thinking, what on earth is happening here? And then the mother kept saying to the child, all this while, right? They, they were in the carriage with me. Oh, don't do that, you know. I'm warning you, you know. You'll really get in trouble if you do that. Ah, you really get it from me, you know. I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get you, I'm, you're gonna be in trouble if you keep doing that, right? But throughout the whole journey, the child just kept running up and down the carriage, lying across the seat, jumping on the seats. And I was just watching this whole thing happening in front of me, and I, and I knew that from the child's perspective, he knew that the mother was never going to punish him. Right? He just, you could tell that this had happened maybe every trip that this child takes, right? Now, the mother was actually probably either indifferent to his actions, so she thought it wasn't such a big deal that she would punish him, or she was a coward, right, because she was not willing to take action. In the same way, people mistake God for being indifferent to our sins, or we mistake God for being a coward and not willing to take action. They mistake the patience of God as cowardice or indifference. But I remember, um, what's this guy who preached at our church before? I can't remember his name now, but I've got one of his commentaries. Oh, Paul Barker. Paul Barker preached at our church before, and he wrote a little commentary on this, and he said that God's patience should never be mistaken for indifference or cowardice. He said, patience which is inexhaustible, which never takes action, is cowardice or indifference. But God is a patient God, it says. God is not an indifferent God or a coward God. And He has said that Jesus will come again to judge everybody according to what they have done. And God is patient, but He will take action one day. So as we've learned from Amos, let us pay attention to God's level of judgment, His power of judgment, His voice. And let us continue to hold on to Jesus and to obey Jesus as we look forward to this judgment to come. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we want to pray that the full impact of what Amos preached so many thousands of years ago will sink in. For you have not changed. Your power has not changed. You still roar and thunder. And the effect of your judgment does not change. It actually brings concrete and awful judgment. 
and help us to see that as a result, we need to see how sinful we are before you, that we have fallen way, way short of your standard, and that we need Jesus all the more. We need to run to the cross for forgiveness, because it is only at the cross may we find refuge and safety from your judgment. And dear Father, may we never leave Jesus, but continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, that truly, when the judgment comes, we will be able to stand and stand firm before you, knowing that Jesus has already paid for our sins. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.